Well, I've, I've uh, lived in Kansas now almost a decade. This, this October will hit 10 years. And I, I've spent lots of time in Kansas. I lived in Wichita uh, for a couple years as a kid. And as any kid's dream is growing up, all my grandparents lived in Kansas. So while everybody else talked about Florida and California for vacations... Team Blaze was like, we get to go to rural Kansas. So I, I know rural Kansas. My, my grandfather was a, was a farmer. My uncle was a farmer. Um, but I'm just one of the things 10 years in that I continue to be amazed by uh, is the faith of farmers uh, who, 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 who work hard and prepare the ground and plant the seed with very little control of what happens next. Uh, last week, uh, you know, t- talking to somebody who just planted a whole bunch of cotton. And I don't know anything about growing cotton, but I'm pretty sure 10 inches of rain is bad for it, right? Um, and if you back up a year and a half ago, it was that we just needed a tenth of an inch of rain, something. And farmers live in these, these extremes. Um, this last week, I was, I was sitting with somebody who, who used to farm on Thursday and he just said, I don't know how anybody who farms isn't a Christian because it's just such a faith-filled act uh, to plant and then rely on God for the right amount of moisture and sun and that things will happen as they need to happen. And, and I think that that's a pretty good picture for us as we, as we conclude our series, uh, Conflicted, this morning. Uh, that we can do lots and lots of good work in the area of conflict uh, resolution. But in the end, we do a lot of work in the hopes that then the Holy Spirit will take what we have done and do things that we are unable to do. So this, this morning, our word uh, is culmination. That we're going to talk about where do, where do all these stories find their, kind of find their final point uh, as we've been going through Genesis. And we, we've looked at this question, right, that popped up in Genesis 4, am I my brother or my sister's keeper? And we've been trying to answer, or we've looked at that ways that the the, the first family of Genesis answered that question throughout their history, right? Cain and Abel, Cain's where this question pops up. He kills his brother Abel in anger, and his answer is clearly no, I'm not my, my brother's keeper. He practices elimination. He gets rid of his brother, who is his problem. Uh, Then we looked at Abraham, and Abraham created separation with the people he was in conflict with, and in the end said, no, I'm not my brother or my sister's keeper. And separation, elimination is a bad option. Separation isn't always a bad option. Sometimes a little space from somebody you have conflict with is really, really healthy. Uh, But it's not the end. It's not a solution long term. Nothing is actually fixed in separation. It's just space so you can, can, can chill out a little bit and maybe come to a better place. Uh, then the next week we talked about conciliation with Jacob and Esau. This idea of uh, kind of a let's make a deal approach to like let's just get the bare minimum so we can be around each other without like actually being okay with each other. Uh, and again, this is sometimes a really necessary part of conflict resolution. Uh, but if we stop there, we're still stopping short because uh, Jacob didn't become the keeper of his brother. And then last week we talked about Joseph and the idea of reconciliation, uh, which is when things are made right between people. And Joseph answers the question, yes, I am my brother's keeper to the many generations, even though they've sold me into slavery and they've done everything wrong. I will be my brother's keeper. 
So today we're going to skip past any of the rest of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and all the rest of the Old Testament. We're in Testament, and we're going to jump to Jesus. And we're going to talk about the way Jesus shapes how we deal with conflict, how we make choices about people, um, how we do ethical living as Christians. And in light of Jesus' ethics this morning, it's not about figuring out, like, this is right and this is wrong. Uh, but we're going to move towards Jesus and allow ourselves to be shaped by Jesus and then learn to make choices from there. That's what Christian ethics look like. Not, a, not two lists, right and wrong, but I will follow Jesus and I will make choices based on who I discovered Jesus to be. And so to, to, to jump into that, we're going to talk about bounded and centered um, sets. And this is how we figure out who's in and who's out. We've talked about this here before, uh, but bounded and centered sets. A bounded set has a clear dividing line between who's in and who's out. The red line, right? It's clear. Um, and the people that are on the inside are, are okay, and they fit in, and they're part of everything. And the people that are not inside the red line are out, and they don't fit in, and they're not welcome, and they're not accepted. And, and we can, this, the, the red line can be anything. We do this all over our culture, right? We have the people that are in, that are okay. I refer to them as Jayhawk fans. And then we have the people that are out, and that's everyone else. Um, universities do this. It's a really helpful thing at a college you're in if you have agreed to pay them money. You're out if you haven't, and they welcome you to not come to their classes. Uh, banks do this. If you open a banking account, you're in. If you don't open an account at that bank, you cannot go and get money from them. And so there's lots of systems in our society that work in bounded sets. Unfortunately, the church ends up often being a bounded set, right? We, we say... Uh, do you speak the right way? Do you wear closed-toed shoes when you preach? Um, I don't ever wear closed-toed shoes. Um, do, you, do you think the right thoughts? Do you act the right way? All, right, all kinds of things. Do you watch the right things? And if you do, you're in. And if you don't, you're other and you're out. And this, this is the way it works lots of times. And that red circle causes a lot of harm. Because it's such a clear dividing line between who's in and who's out. And the people on the inside always get to determine where that red line is. Um, a, a, f- a few years back when we lived in Wyoming, uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the Indian reservations, uh, the Native Americans that, were, that lived right next to where we were, got a casino. Which is a pretty normal thing, but what happens when a casino comes is that you start drawing these in and out lines differently, right? Because there's suddenly money. And they started, the lines started getting smaller and smaller about who qualified to get money from this casino. And you could just watch the damage happen as people who proudly embraced their Native American heritage for generations were suddenly found out like, oh, you're no longer Native American enough for us. And the circle got smaller and smaller and it caused lots of damage. And this happens in the church, and it causes lots of damage. Our other option, rather than thriving on bounded sets, uh, which love to just make people outsiders, is that we can, we can work in a centered set approach. Um, and I think Journey, we, we want to do this. Um, our, our mission statement says, Journey welcomes everyone to worship fully, connect with others, grow in Christ, and serve with passion. 
Not Journey agrees with everyone who's here. We welcome everyone to do these things, to move in this direction. So when we're, when we're centered, it's a directional thing. And the direction we believe is, the, is Jesus on the cross, is at the middle of all things. And we are either moving toward Jesus or we're moving away from Jesus. But when we're centered, the call is let's walk towards Jesus together. And, and so we, we, the goal is, is to, to orient our lives towards Jesus, to proclaim him as the truth and the center of who we are. And so we don't fixate on like figuring out, are you in or are you out? Where do we draw the lines? We fixate on Jesus, and we let him figure out where people are. That, that is no longer up to us. Um, the goal isn't a certain list of rules. The goal is to learn to live our life the way Jesus would live our lives for us. So a few, a few years back, um, I was walking with a student who, was, who felt pretty far from Jesus. I wasn't sure why he kept showing up to church. There just didn't seem to be any indication in his life that, like, Jesus mattered at all. But he kept showing up. And over time, as Jesus does, the Holy Spirit started speaking to this young man. And he started asking questions, and he started having his life shaped. And we sat down one day to talk about this. And he just said, I, I just don't know how, how I can follow Jesus. I'm just... I've done so many bad things. And so I, I took a piece of paper, and I just drew a cross in the middle. And I said, if this is like, if you're at the cross, that means you're the most like Jesus that anyone could ever be. Where do you place yourself? And he didn't have to think about it very long. He placed himself, like, here-ish, way off the paper. He said, I'm way out there. I said, okay, so now we know where you are. I said, now what direction are you facing? He said, I think I'm like, I was facing this way, and now I think I'm facing like this way. And I, but I think I want to face towards the cross. I said, well, that's awesome. If you want to face towards the cross, we get to walk in the same direction, and we can do that together. And so we got to walk through some of the hard things in his life, some of the pain, some of the sin. We got to repent of things. And let go of things, but not because I got to tell him, like, oh, now that you're pointing towards the cross, here's all the things you shouldn't do anymore. But because as he turned towards the cross, the Holy Spirit brought conviction in his life, and it changed him. And he was able to let go of old behaviors. And as I turn towards the cross, I am able to let go of old behaviors and the things that have me bound up in sin. And I'm able to walk towards Jesus. And so one of the beautiful things of a centered set is that we allow people to be convicted by the Holy Spirit rather than convicted by our circle of ideas about what pleases God. Um, I, it would have been really great if we had a way to project pictures up in front, um, but I didn't think about it till this morning. My, my screensaver, can you all see that? Um, <laughs> it, it's, a, uh, it's a picture, and it's a bunch of people holding great big pencils, and they're all drawing lines. And then in the middle of the picture, there's one man with a crown of thorns erasing lines. And just saying, quit drawing the lines. I'm not drawing lines because in a centered set, we focus on Jesus rather than on whatever boundary markers we want to make. So if Jesus is going to be our center, then he's going to shape how we deal with conflict, how we approach people, and how we live life. So we want, I want to look at that in three different areas 
this morning. Three ways we can be developed with the ethics and, and morality uh, of Jesus. And, and Jesus, right, when we look at his life, we, we're not just, he didn't just take a bunch of new ideas and bring them to light. Jesus took a bunch of stories and history of the Old Testament and a bunch of things that the people of God, the Israelites, were living by, and he reshapes them in the New Testament to call not to a different way, but a deeper way of life uh, that they had not known yet and that we are also called into. And so the first place we want to look at this morning is the family. So Matthew twelve forty six through 50, it says, While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus asks a pretty simple question, right? Who is my mother? And if you were one of the people in the room gathered, right, you would have thought, what is going on with this guy? We just, it's the people out there waiting to talk to you as your mother and your brothers, man. But Jesus answers his own question. And he says, my mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of my father in heaven. Jesus reshapes what it means to be family. For him, family moves past like these are the people who I am blood related to, that I, that I have the same name as, that I have the same ancestry as, to family includes anyone who is walking in the way of God the Father. And so Jesus gives us this idea of a family of faith, a convictional community, not a family based on anything other than we are people who want to walk towards the cross together. And when we start doing this, when we start walking towards the cross together, there's always going to be questions of boundaries, right? We can say we're a centered set. There's still going to be lots of boundary sorts of questions about what those different things mean. And that's true in the area of family too. Uh, One of those places where we find a boundary question is in Acts chapter 10. Uh, The apostle Peter is up praying on a roof And it says he has a vision uh, that heaven opens and birds carry down a sheet full of animals. And these animals are impure and unclean. Animals that should not be eaten if you are a good uh, law-abiding Jewish citizen. And as they're lowered down to him, a voice calls out and says, Peter, take these animals, kill them, and eat them. And Peter, because he is law-abiding and good, says, no, I can't do that. That would make me unclean. And twice more this happens that he's called to, to kill these animals and to eat them. And he responds, no, I can't. And at the end of the vision, a voice says, Peter kind of catches on like, oh, maybe God's saying something to me here about what's clean and what's unclean. And then the voice says, go downstairs. There's men that I've sent, and you need to go with them. So he goes with them. And they take him to the home of Cornelius. And and Acts 10 tells us that Cornelius is devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. He does the things that the people who follow Jesus are doing. But he is not a person who follows Jesus because he's a Gentile. He's a Roman soldier, actually. And so when Peter meets him, Peter says, You are well aware that it is against our law 
for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. So Peter's breaking the law right now. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And then Peter continues to talk with him and tells him just the grand story of Jesus uh, and, and salvation. And at the end of the passage, it says that while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who had heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So they had drawn a line that would exclude anyone who wasn't an Israelite, who didn't do all the right things to be the right kind of Israelite. They had a a clear line. But the Spirit led Peter and Cornelius uh, to get rid of that line. And so Cornelius, who was a Gentile, became a part of the family. And the really amazing thing is that then, like, a couple thousand years later, Jesse, a Gentile, gets to be part of the family. And so when these lines get erased and we start looking towards Jesus, it changes things in all of history. So the, so the next place, after family, after Jesus redefines family for us, uh, he also redefines a neighbor. And, and family feels like comfortable most of the time. We know there's conflict there and, and whatever, but if, if somebody's family, you know them. A neighbor starts being a little bit other, right? It's like that person that like, instead of doing their yard on a diagonal, they mow it in straight lines. And you're like, why would you even do that? It looks way better, Right? those people um they start being a little bit other we still know them they're still mostly like us but they're a little bit different and and jesus of course has things to say to us about our neighbors so there's this this uh conversation in luke chapter 10 it says on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test jesus teacher he asked what must i do to inherit eternal life what is written in the law jesus replied how do you read it He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So the initial question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the correct answer that the the, uh, expert in the law gives is, love God and love others. And Jesus says, great, do that. Perfect. That, that brings life. And then the, 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 the expert in law, he asks the boundary question. He asks one more question. And, and his question is simple. He just says, who is my neighbor? And, and Jesus tells a story. Here's, here's the story. It says that in reply to this boundary question, where, where can I draw the line on neighbor? It says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asked the question to the expert. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus is such a good storyteller. Because the Samaritan, the one who acts as a neighbor, is the one who's supposed to be on the outside, right? Samaritans weren't allowed to associate with Israelites. And yet the Samaritan is the one who, in the person's need, cares for him. Because the priest and the Levite, right, they had lines that were drawn. And a man on the side of the road, bleeding and dying, was impure and unclean, and they had important religious things to go do. And they couldn't go do those important religious things if they were impure and unclean. And so they needed to walk by the man on the side of the road. But the Samaritan comes and cares for the man and provides for his, his, his healing. And, and the expert in the law is left to say that that man was the one who was a neighbor. The outsider is the one who was the neighbor. And so if we want to follow the command to love our neighbor, Jesus says that we have to pay attention to those who are outsiders. And especially we need to pay attention to them and love them when they are in their greatest need. And this is radical. Because every day it's really easy to drive by people who we don't consider neighbors and just not pay attention to them. I have a friend who, who lives in, in New York City, and he works with a, an, just a great big organization called New York City Relief that cares for homeless people. And one of my favorite things that he does, his name is Josiah, is Josiah always talks about homeless people as his neighbors. He says, That's, God has called me to see them and to care for them and to walk with them and to love them. And it plays out. We were in Minnesota uh, two years ago for school. And we're walking through a park one afternoon, headed somewhere, and there's a homeless man. And the rest of us kind of just keep walking. You know, we're in, at school. We're, we have things to get done. And we keep walking, and suddenly, like, where's Josiah? And Josiah's sitting under a tree with this man, pulling the extra pair of socks out of his backpack that he always keeps, and having a conversation and getting to know his neighbor. And this is what Jesus says a neighbor does. Is that we see the people who are around us and we love them as ourselves. And this has big implications in 2019 America, right? Because a lot of, a lot of our, our culture now would be trying to say like, here's the dividing lines and here's who's our neighbor and here's who's not our neighbor. And there's a whole big political discussion. But for the people of God... The personal action is love our neighbors. And that includes anyone who we come into contact with who is in need. And so Jesus shapes how we deal with conflict because he says the person in need is your neighbor. Love them and care for them. And then finally, after we redefine family and after we begin to see anyone in need as our neighbor, uh, we come to the, to the last place that Jesus really reshapes uh, the way we do conflict resolution. And that's our enemies. 
I just want to give you a second. Who's the enemy? We all have them, the people we feel set against. It could be small ways. It could be really big ways. But we all have people that we kind of feel like that person's the enemy. In Romans, uh, Paul writes, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Right? Burning coals is a picture of repentance, not of pain. Like, oh, if I'm nice, I'm going to hurt them real good. I'll burn their skull. Right? No, you're missing it. <laughs> if that's where you're like, ooh, that sounds good. Um, it's the idea of like, you'll bring them to repentance, to change, to a new direction when we love our enemies. If you want to affect change in a person that you feel like is your enemy, you will not do it with evil. You will do it by being good to them, by loving them. Right? Scripture, it it doesn't get more clear than overcome evil with good. There are bad, bad things in this world, but the call of Scripture over and over is to take the mighty power of love and to overcome evil with good, right? Rather than standing up evil against evil and seeing which will be a mightier version of evil. Overcome evil with good. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. A few verses later, he goes on to give the summation of this like enemy love ethic. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This idea of being perfect, that there's, there's no limit. Not that we always get things exactly right, but that we have no limits to loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute you. The Revised English Bible um, gives, a, uh, gives a great translation of this, and it says, There must be no limit to your goodness, as your heavenly Father's goodness knows no bounds. No limit to your goodness, just as God's goodness knows no bounds and limits. So what does it look like to love without limits? And I want to be realistic. It's really easy to talk about, like, love your enemy because it'll bring them to repentance and it'll be awesome. And sometimes we love our enemies and it brings repentance and it's really awesome. But we have lots of stories throughout history of people who loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them and died at the hands of their enemies, right? We have lots of these stories. And the call doesn't change in the light of those stories. The call is that we overcome evil with good, even when the evil seems oh so powerful. And so a few stories this morning. In the midst of this, there's, there's the, uh, the, the wonderful book um, 
by Victor Hugo, uh, Les Miserables, which has been uh, made into movies and uh, musical and all kinds of different uh, ways that you can take it in. Uh, but there's this, this bishop that takes up the first chunk of the book. And it talks about this bishop um, as a man who just intentionally follows Jesus over and over and over, day after day, in the little things of his life. And then eventually, uh, kind of the main character of the story, Jean Valjean, who's a, who's a convicted criminal, a thief who gets out of jail and is making his way to the city where he has to check in and, and let them know he's there. And he spends a night with the bishop. Uh, the bishop welcomes him in because that's what Jesus does, right? And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean wakes up and being a thief, he does what thieves do and he intends to steal uh, from the bishop. And so I, I, I want us to watch this. this is from a, like a 1992 uh, movie version of this. And I, I just, it shows uh, what it looks like to love our enemies. So let's go ahead and play that. So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes, of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. really letting me go. Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. 
forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. It's within the bishop's rights when Jean Valjean is marched back in to have him arrested and put away for the rest of his life. But the bishop has been shaped by Jesus. And it's costly, right? It costs him all this beautiful silver that that they have. This valuable possession is given away. Not just what was taken, but he goes and gives him more of it. Dallas Willard, an author, he writes, Jesus invited people to follow him into that sort of life from which behavior such as loving one's enemies will seem like the only sensible and happy thing to do. For a person living that life, the hard thing to do would be to hate the enemy, to turn the supplicant away. In 1569, anabaptism, from which we get our roots, uh, was, was, was still in its, in its infancy. And there was a man named Dirk Willems who was arrested for being an Anabaptist and he was thrown in prison. He eventually escaped and as he runs away, he's being pursued and he runs across a frozen river. And the story goes that his captor was not so lucky. His pursuer, as he ran across the river, broke through and fell in. Dirk is now safely on the other side and could flee and run. But he sees his enemy in the icy water and knows his enemy will die. And so Dirk turns around and goes back to his enemy and pulls him out. And the story, unfortunately, doesn't go that his his jailer, so thankful for Dirk rescuing him, embraces him and frees him. The story is that once rescued, the man shackles Dirk and sends him back to prison where he is tortured and killed for his faith. Enemy love is not simple and easy, and there's no guarantee that it changes our enemies. But if we are shaped by Jesus, it's who we become. N.T. Wright says, We do not simply make ourselves good by learning about virtues and then trying hard to practice them. Rather, we find ourselves caught up by the story of Jesus by the events of his life, his kingdom announcement, his death and resurrection. And we find both that he is himself the goal, the fullness of humanity, as well as the fullness of divinity, and that he himself is the way, the journey by which we may ourselves come to that goal. The final example after after the, the bishop and Dirk, right, is Jesus on the cross. This is what loving your enemies looks like. Because while we were far off and dead in sin, Jesus went to the cross and gave himself for us. He even on the cross prays for those who are directly his enemy in that moment that are putting him on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And so as we look to Jesus as our center, 
as our guide for what it means to live ethically, to resolve conflict, um, to become the people of God. What is the shift you need to make in your life to be shaped by Jesus? Do you need to welcome family that you have put on the outside of some lines? Do you need to pay attention to your neighbors in need? Do you need to practice the radical enemy love of Jesus? Whatever the case, wherever you find yourself, the encouragement would be to look to Jesus this week as your example. And together we will walk towards the cross and let ourselves be shaped uh, by the Jesus that we find there. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that the picture of love is in the shape of a cross. God, and that that picture of love uh, has had an effect on human history. God, help us this week to be shaped to love those around us, God. Um, to take down the lines that we have put up that divide us. God, that we would welcome people as family who are turned towards you. God, that we would love our neighbors as we see those in need, that we would take action. And God, those that we see as our enemies, uh, that we would practice the love, the grace, and the mercy uh, that, that Jesus demonstrated on the cross. God, make us a people who are shaped in the shape of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.